University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkway. Visit ubc-br.org or at UBCBR on Facebook for more information. We'll take a look at the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1. Have you ever considered how a writer begins a story? Before Twain wrote Tom Sawyer into existence, before Emily Dickinson spun her opaque poetry into history, and well before the very difficult plot twist of Paw Patrol, the writers bore through a process that brought such things into life. For some writers, this process was intrinsically clear, while for others, it was quite challenging. It is the great Maya Angelou who said, There is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. So where does an author begin? Is it with the characters? Is it with the introduction? Is it with a shocking ending? The story begins with a single thought, a single word, and words are powerful. They light a fire within our minds. They tear down and they heal. Words bring tears to even the hardest of hearts. Words condemn and words bring life. And the most intriguing words sometimes raise us to a new understanding of who we are to be in this world. And this is where I want us to begin with our Start With Why conversation around UBC's core value of Bible authority. And for the next few Sundays, we'll take a look at what this means and a better understanding as what we're talking about when we talk about the Word of God, why we need to interpret it, and what authority it brings to our life. So let's look at this and how John begins his gospel in John 1.1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through whom all things were made, Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The great wordsmith Mark Twain wrote, The difference between the almost right word and the right word is the difference between a lightning bug and a lightning bolt. Matthew and Luke begin their Gospels very interesting because they begin with the genealogy of Jesus in some sort of form, and then they eventually get around to the birth narrative. Mark just kind of hops right into the story of Jesus as an adult, bypassing birth narrative into this, and bypassing this fun genealogical list that all of us enjoy reading. John, on the other hand, thought he was special because John begins with this cosmic story of preexistence the Word, and the Word's relationship with the world. John is not trying to uh, just find some sort of particular words. He wants these words to talk about not only how the gospel ignites and begins, but also he's following the narrative of Genesis 1. You can imagine him writing, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, except in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's no doubt that the central focus of this text is a single word. It is the word, word. (laughs) 
is the word logos. It means a deeply significant thing. It means a, a word uttered by a living voice or a, a word embodying a concept or idea. Yet there is something much more here, something more considerable that we need to recognize. John does not simply want this significant word to be pointed out. He wants this to encompass all that we think about. He's not just talking about the Bible. John calls God the Logos, God the Word. For us, words often mean more than just a combination of sounds used to designate an object or convey a thought. But the ancients viewed words as living things. That is what John is saying here. In the beginning, before all that we knew came into existence, there was this living thing called the Word. And the Word isn't just something that God spoke, because God is the Word. John goes into this intensely deep discourse about the existence and unity of God as the Word. Theologically, John is telling us about the nature of God. He's trying to say that God is both singular and plural. God is one God, but also God is in three parts, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And for us, this is such a a simplistic concept, but for our forebears who thought and fought gravely for this concept to truly be understand, it is significant that God is layered, that God is complex, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. John wants his readers to understand that the Word of God And the word that is God is a powerful thing. And in three verses, from three through five, John tells us that the word of God spoke life into existence, and it is a great light in the darkness. Those are powerful words. On July the 20th, 1969, Neil Armstrong climbed out of the lunar module, slowly going down the stairs, And when he stepped down, he took that famous step forward and said, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. America was forever changed by the way that we encountered space. On December 6, 1980, the Patriots and the Dolphins were playing each other on Monday night football. And somewhere in the waning hours of the fourth quarter, Howard Cosell, one of the greatest sportcasters of all time, came on to make an announcement that sent millions into mourning. He said, we have an announcement to make. This is just a football game, and when it ends, life will go on. But an unspeakable tragedy has taken place in New York City. John Lennon has been shot in the back twice. He was rushed to the hospital and pronounced dead upon arrival. With those words, we found and discovered that a great poet and activist and creator was lost. After stowing away and hiding in a room for nearly two years with her family, Anne Frank's family was suddenly bombarded by German SS soldiers who kicked in the door and took her away. She was 16 years old. And Anne Frank reminds us of just the darkness that oftentimes is humanity, and yet she still wrote these powerful words in her diary, I still believe, in spite of everything, that people are truly good at heart. Think of the power of words. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to Abraham Lincoln, Rene Descartes to to the Buddha, to, to such powerful words that speak existence, speak words, speak powerful things into the world. Malala Yousafzai said, One child, one teacher, one book, and one pen can change the world. So when we reflect on the power of words, John is challenging us to consider 
if our words, if human words can speak anything into existence. And in verse 3, John writes that the, the word made all things, and without the word, nothing has been made that has been made. John is paralleling the Hebrew text in which he says that God, ruah, God, breathed life into existence. That's a powerful word from the word. Stop and consider for just a second. For all of human words that we have spoken, for all the things that have been said uh, that change the way that we see and go about our lives, for all the words composed in, in poetry, for all the words compiled to invent the most fascinating gadgets and medications that change our lives every single day, we do not have the power to speak everything into existence. And John says that nothing was created apart and without God. And not only this, but God speaks life into us, unifying all things together. The Word of God is a source of creativity. And the two insights into the Logos that we've discovered so extraordinarily, John doesn't stop there. What does he say in verse 4 and 5? In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This, of course, is not only the first time that God has been referred to as light. On one hand, John gives a reader nudging us to understand that Jesus Christ is coming up in this gospel. But one of the implications that John is trying to say that God's word gives light and illuminates our lives and our daily lives. What did the great psalmist write? Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And later, unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. This is one of the primary ways that we see the word of God. We see it as wisdom, as decrees in our life. The Bible is a compilation of, of sayings and stories and parables and wisdoms of God. It is in these pages that we discover more about God. Those who've walked the path of a journey with God. We see the, the laws given to Moses. We see the power of a word given to the prophets. We see the world-altering actions and words of Jesus of Nazareth. And when words, they give us shape. They give us perspective. They give us decisions. They help our path of our journey. God illuminates our life, illuminates the darkness around us. We, we see this in this physical document that we call the Bible, but God's Word is so much more than this. Of course, the compiling of these words, these, this thing that we've come to know as the Bible, it, it took a, a very difficult process. For some of us, we've just thought that we've got this leather-bound thing and it so easily came to us. It took years and years of work. The process of what's called canonization, where the, the measurement, the rule of how we brought Scripture into existence, the canon was compiled uh, of Scripture that contained this authoritative rules of our faith and practices, this standard of doctrine and unity. The Hebrew Bible was divided into three parts, the, the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. And the concept of the Hebrew Bible as we have it today began shortly after 587 BCE. And yet it took nearly 600 years for us to have what we would call the Old Testament scriptures today in one unified form. And as church historian, I would love to go into the next hour about how we got the Hebrew or how we got the full scripture as we know it today, but it's important for us to understand that it took nearly 300 years for the church to develop this thing that we know as the Bible today. One of the first adoptions of the Bible came from a person named Marcion. Marcion's one of my favorite people in all of church history. 
because Marcion couldn't believe that the God he saw in the Old Testament was the same God he saw in the New Testament. So what Marcion believed was that the God of the New Testament killed the God of the Old Testament because that can't be the same God because we see a God of war in the Old Testament and a God of love through Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And so his first early adoption of the Scriptures basically had the Gospels and the letters of Paul. Well, the church condemned him as a heretic. The church had a problem. How do we talk about what we have as the Bible? How do we form these books together? And so the book, uh, they developed this criteria. The first thing is it had to be written by one of the apostles or someone who was directly connected with the apostles. These were the people who literally walked with and witnessed and heard Jesus' words. The second criteria was that the books had to be from the time of the apostles in the apostolic age. So as we get further and further from the physical time of Jesus, it was less and less believable that these were, quote, authoritative words of Scripture. The third criteria was that the book had to be useful. In other words, the book in the Bible had to give some sort of formation and light and insight into what Jesus is inviting us into. And the fourth thing was that the book had to match sound doctrine and belief of all the other books in the Bible. So take, for example, the Gospel of Thomas. Why that wasn't included? Well, it had a story from Jesus as a child um, making these clay pigeons and bringing them to life. And then these boys kill the clay pigeons, so Jesus kills the boys, and then Mary talks him into bringing the boys back to life. You can begin to see why the Gospel of Thomas didn't make it into the canon of Scripture. So we have this physical, written word of God, but we're learning so much more about God. It's this written sayings, it's this this wisdom, it is God living and breathing this word. But the Bible demands that we study the Bible so much differently. We can't study the Bible necessarily academically because it, it deserves a different type of studying. But yet at the same time, we must analyze and criticize and work through and understand the dynamics of the Bible because the Bible demands that we study it in such a way. It's the fact that we have these 67 books of the Bible with dates and genealogies and names and specific events. It demands that we look at it critically. It demands that we study it academically. And we we read to read through it, the scripture uh, declares things that, that quite possibly don't line up with reality. And so therefore, it determines that we study it academically. Like when the scriptures declare that the sun revolves around the earth. Or the fact that there's two creation stories. Or the fact that that, that genealogy and chronological errors happen within Scripture. These things that we have to take serious and challenge us to study the Bible, to analyze the Bible. But it's what this book is intended for. It's not intended to be a history documentary. But the Bible is intended for us to to read through it, to, to see it as a source of our faith. That John argues that the Word of God is more than what can be bound within this leather text. How often have we limited God to just this? But the Bible is so much more. In fact, John says in verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. See, John is raising this world-altering significance of what the Logos is. On one hand, John is fighting against this early church heresy that said uh, that's called docetism, that, that arguing that the Son did not really become flesh, that Jesus just appeared to have flesh. 
But John is also giving us a significant insight into who God is and how God changed the world forever. God is not just this word that can be written down. God is not just this word that speaks things into existence. John is challenging us to see that God became flesh. The word became flesh and dwelled among us. God, the Word of God, became flesh, dwelling among us. It changes everything. No longer was God this being that hovered above the primordial waters, speaking life into existence, hovering above the prophets, speaking words into the hearts of the people. God literally took flesh and lived among us. What an inconceivable miracle when you stop and think of that. That God walked and talked and slept and ate and lived, and died, and resurrected right beside us. God did not just appear as a man, but God was present with us. So just when we think we can conceive in our minds what the Word of God is, that is this saying and decrees of God, it's this verbal power that spoke life into existence, it's also a God who became human. I don't know about you, but the concept of that just does this. The Word of God is so much more than we can put into words. The Word of God became flesh and dwelled among us. Therefore, Christ challenged us to reinterpret how we encounter Scripture. As one biblical scholar put it, no one can draw a line between Jesus, what Jesus says and he does. Between his identity and mission in the world, Jesus' words and works, his life and death, form an indissoluble whole that provides full and fresh access to God. By the word of God becoming flesh, dying and resurrecting, inviting us into new way of life, we have a new dynamic of how we encounter the word of God. The word of God now must be interpreted through Jesus, which is a lens of grace and love. What did John say in verse 14? We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The letters of John reminds us that if we obey God's word, love God, and truly made complete in us, that is how we know we are in him, if we claim to live in him and live as Jesus did. This has significantly changed our understanding and the uses of Scripture in our life. The word of God is not this weapon that we bludgeon people with judgment and condemnation. How can grace and love bring life through such methods? See, Jesus challenged us that, that we must receive and live into the Word of God because it is through Jesus that we read and interpret it and live out the Word of God in our life, which is to live out a life of grace and peace and love. Christian Nolan is one of the greatest directors of our time. Um, I should leave it at that, but this is the guy, for those that aren't familiar, that brought us the Dark Knight trilogy uh, he brought us Memento, The Prestige, Interstellar, and of course Dunkirk. If you haven't seen Dunkirk, it's fantastic. In 2010, uh, my favorite film of his is Inception, and it's, it's a head-scratcher. It's one of these movies where you're supposed to be left thinking what, what really just happened. We're plunged into this world where a group of people have the ability to enter into people's dreams and extract ideas and secrets. The central character of the movie is Cobb, who's played by Leonardo DiCaprio, who's been exiled from the U.S. Um, and his children because the courts found him guilty of killing his wife, which he didn't actually do. He's hired by a man who promises to give him uh, immunity in the U.S. and his ability to see his children again if he doesn't help steal an idea, but instead plant an idea into someone else's dreams. 
Every person who enters into a dream is required to have this thing called a totem. It's to remind you if you're really in reality or if you're really in a dream. Cobb's totem is a, a spinning top. And the film plunges into layer upon layer of dream, leaving us wondering if the characters are really in reality or if they're really in a dream. This, of course, concludes with the movie ending where Cobb is actually able to see his children again, except we're left with this top spinning on the table. If the top stops spinning, we know that he is in reality. If the top keeps spinning, we know that he's in a dream. And Christopher Nolan, in all of his brilliance, leaves the movie with the top slightly teetering just a little bit, leaving you not sure whether he's in a dream or reality. The movie leaves you with more questions than answers. This is the inconceivable nature of God and God's Word. That we think that we can control the Word of God, that we can formulate our words about God that God doesn't actually use, but God's Word is inconceivable. It's uncontainable. It's this word that speaks life into existence. It's this word that casts out darkness in our lives in this word. It's this word that is pent over 800,000 words within Scripture. The word of God is manifested. It's inconceivable. It's uncontainable. As one author put it, the word is a maze with no exit, a labyrinth that lures us as if we can never be let go. But too often we reduce the word of God into cliche sayings that are valuable for our lives, a mascot, a prop that we can throw out to make us feel better about the decisions we make in our life. Too often we use the Word of God to bludgeon other people with our self-righteousness. But the Word of God is inconceivable. The last thing I want to leave us with this morning as we are encountering what it means to have a Bible authority is this, that the Word of God is active because it is the Spirit of God. You see, John doesn't just refer to the Word as Jesus Christ. He's not just referring to the Word as something we have written down. He's not just talking about the Word that spoke life into existence as we know it, but he also talks about the Word in the present future tense. He's referring to the Spirit of God that is present in our life. It is the Spirit of God that reminds us of all the things that Jesus has taught us. It is the Spirit of God that fills us with the power of God's Word to live out who we are called to be in this world. It is the Spirit of God that fills us with hope and strength and courage to go and transform this world, not with self-righteousness, but with the way of Jesus, the way of love and hope and peace. God's Word is living and breathing, speaking, moving in and around us. The great theologian Soren Kierkegaard wrote, The fundamental purpose of God's Word is to give us true self-knowledge. It is a real mirror. And when we look at ourselves properly in it, we see ourselves as God wants us to see ourselves. The assumption behind this is that the purpose of God's revelation is for us to become transformed, to become the people God wants us to be. But this is impossible until we see ourselves for who we really are. Within this Bible, 774,746 words written by over 40 authors on three different continents over a period of 2,000 years in three languages that has more impact and more world-altering container of words than any other document in history. But what kind of impact does it have on your life? How has it transformed and formed you? At first glance, the Bible looks like it's just a book full of stories, 
full of sayings, full of really boring genealogical lists. Noah begot Ham, and then some other difficult Hebrew word that we're supposed to read. It's full of really old, racist, and oftentimes sexist laws, provocative and wise poems, military campaigns that bathe the genocide of innocent people, letters to the churches, and narratives of this guy named Jesus. The word is a dangerous thing because it's justified horrible acts of violence and injustice and judgment. Yet these words have brought peace into violence, justice to the oppressed, freedom among judgment, love among hate, grace among wrongdoing. But these words are so much more than that. These words are inviting you into a journey. They teach us about our life. They teach us about the way that we see this world. They teach us and constantly challenge us to change our way of thinking and living, for that is the invitation of Jesus. To follow the true word in our life that is constantly changing the way that we see ourselves, the way that we see others, and the way that we are called to interact in this world. Do you believe that a single word can change the world?